Section 11 of The Evil Guest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Section 11. Two or three days passed, and Dr. Danvers came and sat for several hours with poor Mrs. Marston. To comfort and console were, of course, out of his power. The nature of the bereavement, far more terrible than death, its recent occurrence, the distracting consciousness of all its complicated consequences, rendered this a hopeless task. She bowed herself under the blow with the submission of a broken heart. The hope to which she had clung for years had vanished. The worst that ever her imagination feared had come in earnest. One idea was now constantly present in her mind. She felt a sad but immovable assurance that she should not live long, and the thought, what will become of my darling when I am gone? Who will guard and love my child when I am in my grave? To whom is she to look for tenderness and protection, then? Perpetually haunted her, and superadded the pangs of a still wilder despair to the desolation of a broken heart. It was not for more than a week after this event that one day Willet, with a certain air of anxious mystery, entered the silent and darkened chamber where Mrs. Marston lay. She had a letter in her hand. The seal and handwriting were Mr. Marston's. It was long before the injured wife was able to open it. When she did so, the following sentences met her eye. Gertrude, you can be ignorant neither of the nature nor of the consequences of the decisive step I have taken. I do not seek to excuse it. For the censure of the world, its meddling and mouthing hypocrisy, I care absolutely nothing. I have long set it at defiance. And you yourself, Gertrude, when you deliberately reconsider the circumstances of estrangement and coldness under which, though beneath the same roof we have lived for many years, without either sympathy or confidence, can scarcely, if at all, regret the rupture of a tie which had long ceased to be anything better than an irksome and galling formality. I do not desire to attribute to you the smallest blame. There was an incompatibility, not of temper, but of feelings, which made us strangers though calling one another man and wife. Upon this fact I rest my own justification. Our living together under these circumstances was, I dare say, equally undesired by us both. It was, in fact, but a deference to the formal hypocrisy of the world. At all events, the irrevocable act which separates us forever is done, and I have now merely to state so much of my intentions as may relate in any wise to your future arrangements. I have written to your cousin and former guardian, Mr. Latimer, telling him how matters stand between us. You, I told him, shall have, without opposition from me, the whole of your own fortune to your own separate use, together with whatever shall be mutually agreed upon as reasonable, from my income, for your support and that of my daughter. It will be necessary to complete your arrangements with expedition, as I purpose returning to Grey Forest in about three weeks, and as, of course, a meeting between you and those by whom I shall be accompanied is wholly out of the question, you will see the expediency of losing no time and adjusting everything for yours and my daughter's departure." In the details, of course, I shall not interfere. I think I have made myself clearly intelligible, and would recommend your communicating at once with Mr. Latimer, with a view to completing temporary arrangements, until your final plans shall have been decided upon. Richard Marston The reader can easily conceive the feelings with which this letter was perused. We shall not attempt to describe them, nor shall we weary his patience by a detail of all the circumstances attending Mrs. Marston's departure. Suffice it to mention that, in less than a fortnight after the receipt of the letter which we have just copied, she had forever left the mansion of Grey Forest. In a small house, in a sequestered part of the rich county of Warwick, the residence of Mrs. Marston and her daughter was for the present fixed, and there, for a time, the heart-broken and desolate lady enjoyed, at least, the privilege of an immunity from the intrusions of all external trouble. 
but the blow, under which the feeble remains of her health and strength were gradually to sink, had struck too surely home, and from month to month, almost from week to week, the progress of decay was perceptible. Meanwhile, though grieved and humbled, and longing to comfort his unhappy mother, Charles Marston, for the present absolutely dependent upon his father, had no choice but to remain at Cambridge, and to pursue his studies there. At Grey Forest, Marston and the partner of his guilt continued to live. The old servants were all gradually dismissed, and new ones hired by Mademoiselle de Barras. There they dwelt, shunned by everybody, in a stricter and more desolate seclusion than ever. The novelty of the unrestraint and license of their new mode of life speedily passed away, and with it the excited and guilty sense of relief which had for a time produced a false and hollow gaiety. The sense of security prompted in Mademoiselle a hundred indulgences, which, in her former precarious position, she would not have dreamed of. Outbreaks of temper, sharp and sometimes violent, began to manifest themselves on her part, and renewed disappointment and blacker remorse to darken the soul of Marston himself. Often, in the dead of the night, the servants would overhear their bitter and fierce altercations ringing through the melancholy mansion, and often the reckless use of terrible and mysterious epithets of crime. Their quarrels increased in violence and in frequency, and before two years had passed, feelings of bitterness, hatred, and dread alone seemed to subsist between them. Yet upon Marston she continued to exercise a powerful and mysterious influence. There was a dogged, apathetic submission on his part, and a growing insolence on hers, constantly more and more strikingly visible. Neglect, disorder, and decay, too, were more than ever apparent in the dreary air of the place. Dr. Danvers, save by rumour and conjecture, knew nothing of Marston and his abandoned companion. He had more than once felt a strong disposition to visit Grey Forest, and expostulate face to face with its guilty proprietor. This idea, however, he had, upon consideration, dismissed, not on account of any shrinking from the possible repulses and affronts to which the attempt might subject him, but from a thorough conviction that the endeavour would be utterly fruitless for good, while it might, very obviously, expose him to painful misinterpretation and suspicion, and leave it to be imagined that he had been influenced, if by no meaner motive, at least by the promptings of a coarse curiosity. Meanwhile he maintained a correspondence with Mrs. Marston, and had even once or twice since her departure visited her. Latterly, however, this correspondence had been a good deal interrupted, and its intervals had been supplied occasionally by Rhoda, whose letters, although she herself appeared unconscious of the mournful event, the approach of which they too plainly indicated, were painful records of the rapid progress of mortal decay. He had just received one of those ominous letters at the little post-office in the town we have already mentioned, and full of the melancholy news it contained, Dr. Danvers was returning slowly towards his home. As he rode into a lonely road, traversing an undulating tract of some three miles in length, the singularity, it may be, of his costume attracted the eye of another passenger, who was, as it turned out, no other than Marston himself. For two or three miles of this desolate road, their ways happened to lie together. Marston's first impulse was to avoid the clergyman. His second, which he obeyed, was to join company and ride along with him, at all events for so long as would show that he shrank from no encounter which fortune or accident presented. There was a spirit of bitter defiance in this, which cost him a painful effort. "'How do you do, Parson Danvers?' said Marston, touching his hat with the handle of his whip. Danvers thought he had seldom seen a man so changed in so short a time. His face had grown sallow and wasted, and his figure slightly stooped, with an appearance almost of feebleness. "'Mr. Marston,' said the clergyman, gravely and almost sternly, though with some embarrassment, 
It is a long time since you and I have seen one another, and many and painful events have passed in the interval. I scarce know upon what terms we meet. I am prompted to speak to you, and in a tone, perhaps, which you will hardly brook. And yet, if we keep company, as it seems likely we may, I cannot, and I ought not, to be silent. Well, Mr. Danvers, I accept the condition. Speak what you will, said Marston, with a gloomy promptitude. If you exceed your privilege and grow uncivil, I need but use my spurs, and leave you behind me preaching to the winds. Ah, Mr. Marston, said Dr. Danvers, almost sadly, after a considerable pause, when I saw you close beside me, my heart was troubled within me. You looked on me as something from the netherworld, and expected to see the cloven hoof, said Marston bitterly, and raising his booted foot a little as he spoke. But after all I am but a vulgar sinner of flesh and blood, without enough of the preternatural about me to frighten an old nurse, much less to agitate a pillar of the church. Mr. Marston, you talk sarcastically, but you feel that recent circumstances, as well as old recollections, might well disturb and trouble me at sight of you, answered Dr. Danvers. Well, yes, perhaps it is so, said Marston hastily and sullenly, and became silent for a while. My heart is full, Mr. Marston, charged with grief when I think of the sad history of those with whom, in my mind, you must ever be associated, said Dr. Danvers. Ay, to be sure, said Marston, with stern impatience, but then you have much to console you. You have got your comforts and your respectability, all the dearer, too, from the contrast of other people's misfortunes and degradations. Then you have your religion, moreover. Yes, interrupted Danvers earnestly, and hastening to avoid a sneer upon this subject. God be blessed, I am an humble follower of his gracious Son, our Redeemer, and though I trust I should bear with patient submission whatever chastisement in his wisdom and goodness he might see fit to inflict upon me, yet I do praise and bless him for the mercy which has hitherto spared me, and I do feel that mercy all the more profoundly from the afflictions and troubles with which I daily see others overtaken. And in the matter of piety and decorum, doubtless, you bless God also, said Marston sarcastically that you are not as other men are, nor even as this publican. Nay, Mr. Marston, God forbid I should harden my sinful heart with the wicked pride of the Pharisee. Evil and corrupt am I already overmuch. Too well I know the vileness of my heart to make myself righteous in my own eyes, replied Dr. Danvers humbly. But, sinner as I am, I am yet a messenger of God, whose mission is one of authority to his fellow sinners. And woe is me if I speak not the truth at all seasons, and in all places where my words may be profitably heard. Well, Dr. Danvers, it seems you think it your duty to speak to me, of course, respecting my conduct and my spiritual state. I shall save you the pain and trouble of opening the subject. I shall state the case for you in two words, said Marston almost fiercely. I have put away my wife without just cause, and am living in sin with another woman. Come, what have you to say on this theme? Speak out. Deal with me as roughly as you will. I will hear it and answer you again. Alas, Mr. Marston, and do not these things trouble you? exclaimed Dr. Danvers earnestly. Do they not weigh heavy upon your conscience? Ah, sir, do you not remember that, slowly and surely, you are drawing towards the hour of death and the day of judgment? The hour of death? Yes, I know it is coming, and I await it with indifference. But for the day of judgment, with its books and trumpets, my dear doctor, pray don't expect to frighten me with that. Marston spoke with an angry scorn, which had the effect of interrupting the conversation for some moments. They rode on, side by side, for a long time without speaking. At length, however, Marston unexpectedly broke the silence. Dr. Danvers, said he, you asked me some time ago if I feared the hour of death and the day of judgment. I answered you truly, I do not fear them. 
Nay, death, I think, I could meet with a happier and a quieter heart than any other chance that can befall me. But there are other fears, fears that do trouble me much. Dr. Danvers looked inquiringly at him, but neither spoke for a time. "'You have not seen the catastrophe of the tragedy yet,' said Marston, with a stern, stony look, made more horrible by a forced smile, and something like a shudder. "'I wish I could tell you. You, Dr. Danvers, for you are honourable and gentle-hearted. I wish I durst tell you what I fear. The only, only thing I really do fear. No mortal knows it but myself, and I see it coming upon me with slow but unconquerable power. Oh, God, dreadful spirit, spare me!' Again they were silent, and again Marston resumed. "'Dr. Danvers, don't mistake me,' he said, turning sharply, and fixing his eyes with a strange expression upon his companion. "'I dread nothing human. I fear neither death, nor disgrace, nor eternity. I have no secrets to keep, no exposures to apprehend. But I dread—I dread—' He paused, scowled darkly, as if stung with pain, turned away, muttering to himself, and gradually became much excited. "'I can't tell you now, sir, and I won't,' he said, abruptly and fiercely, and with a countenance darkened with a wild and appalling rage that was wholly unaccountable. "'I see you searching me with your eyes. Suspect what you will, sir. You shan't inveigle me into admissions. I pry, whisper, stare, question, conjecture, sir. I suppose I must endure the world's impertinence, but damn me if I gratify it.' It would not be easy to describe Dr. Danvers' astonishment at this unaccountable explosion of fury. He was resolved, however, to bear his companion's violence with temper. They rode on slowly for fully ten minutes in utter silence, except that Marston occasionally muttered to himself, as it seemed, in excited abstraction. Danvers had at first felt naturally offended at the violent and insulting tone in which he had been so unexpectedly and unprovokedly addressed. But this feeling of irritation was but transient, and some fearful suspicions as to Marston's sanity flitted through his mind. In a calmer and more dogged tone, his companion now addressed him. "'There is little profit, you see, doctor, in worrying me about your religion,' said Marston. "'It is but sowing the wind, and reaping the whirlwind, and, to say the truth, the longer you pursue it, the less I am in the mood to listen. If ever you are cursed and persecuted as I have been, you will understand how little tolerant of gratuitous vexations and contradictions a man may become.' We have squabbled over religion long enough, and each holds his own faith still. Continue to sun yourself in your happy delusions, and leave me untroubled to tread the way of my own dark and cheerless destiny. Thus saying, he made a sullen gesture of farewell, and spurring his horse, crossed the broken fence at the roadside, and so, at a listless pace, through gaps and by farm roads, penetrated towards his melancholy and guilty home. Two years had now passed since the decisive event which had forever separated Marston from her who had loved him so devoutly and so fatally. Two years to him of disappointment, abasement, and secret rage. Two years to her of gentle and heartbroken submission to the chastening hand of heaven. At the end of this time she died. Marston read the letter that announced the event with a stern look, and silently, but the shock he felt was terrific. No man is so self-abandoned to despair and degradation that at some casual moment thoughts of amendment, some gleams of hope, however faint and transient, from the distant future, will not visit him. With Marston those thoughts had somehow ever been associated with vague ideas of a reconciliation with the being whom he had forsaken, good and pure, and looking at her from the darkness and distance of his own fallen state, almost angelic as she seemed. But she was now dead, and he could make her no atonement. She could never smile forgiveness upon him. 
this long familiar image, the last that had reflected for him one ray of the lost peace and love of happier times, had vanished, and henceforward there was before him nothing but storm and fear. Marston's embarrassed fortunes made it to him an object to resume the portion of his income heretofore devoted to the separate maintenance of his wife and daughter. In order to effect this, it became, of course, necessary to recall his daughter Rhoda, and fix her residence once more at Grey Forest. No more dreadful penalty could have been inflicted upon the poor girl, no more agonizing ordeal than that she was thus doomed to undergo. She had idolized her mother, and now adored her memory. She knew that Mademoiselle de Barras had betrayed and indirectly murdered the parent she had so devotedly loved. She knew that that woman had been the curse, the fate of her family, and she regarded her naturally with feelings of mingled terror and abhorrence, the intensity of which was indescribable. The few scattered friends and relatives whose sympathies had been moved by the melancholy fate of poor Mrs. Marston were unanimously agreed that the intended removal of the young and innocent daughter to the polluted mansion of sin and shame was too intolerably revolting to be permitted. But each of these virtuous individuals unhappily thought it the duty of the others to interpose, and with a running commentary of wonder and reprobation, and much virtuous criticism, events were suffered uninterruptedly to take their sinister and melancholy course. It was about two months after the death of Mrs. Marston, and on a bleak and ominous night at the wintry end of autumn, that poor Rhoda, in deep mourning, and pale with grief and agitation, descended from a chaise at the well-known door of the mansion of Grey Forest. Whether from consideration for her feelings, or, as was more probable, from pure indifference, Rhoda was conducted, on her arrival, direct to her own chamber, and it was not until the next morning that she saw her father. He entered her room unexpectedly. He was very pale, and, as she thought, greatly altered, but he seemed perfectly collected and free from agitation. The marked and even shocking change in his appearance, and perhaps even the trifling, though painful, circumstance that he wore no mourning for the beloved being who was gone, caused her, after a moment's mute gazing in his face, to burst into an irrepressible flood of tears. Marston waited stoically until the paroxysm had subsided, and then taking her hand, with a look in which the dogged sternness was contending with something like shame, he said, "'There, there, you can weep when I am gone. I shan't say very much to you at present, Rhoda, and only wish you to attend to me for one minute. Listen, Rhoda, the lady whom you have been in the habit—here he slightly averted his eyes—of calling Mademoiselle de Barras is no longer so. She is married. She is my wife, and consequently you will treat her with the respect due to—' he would have said a mother, but could not, and supplied the phrase by adding, to that relation. Rhoda was unable to speak, but almost unconsciously bowed her head in token of attention and submission, and her father pressed her hand more kindly, as he continued, I have always found you a dutiful and obedient child, Rhoda, and expected no other conduct from you. Mrs. Marston will treat you with proper kindness and consideration, and desires me to say that you can, whenever you please, keep strictly to yourself, and need not, unless you feel so disposed, attend the regular meals of the family. This privilege may suit your present depressed spirits, and you must not scruple to use it. After a few words more, Marston withdrew, leaving his daughter to her reflections, and bleak and bitter enough they were. End of section 11